You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, hey, good morning and welcome to City Church. My name is Alex Scott. I serve here as the executive pastor and just want to wish you a happy Memorial Day weekend. I'm glad most of you uh, got the news about the summer schedule with services at 9 and 11 today. Uh, Some of you all came for 8.30 and you were late and you realized you were really early. So we're glad you were here that early. Um, We'll be back at three services, as Harrison said, next week at 8.30, 10 and 11.30. But we're uh, excited to be continuing in our series this morning uh, in the book of Acts as we kind of since January have been looking at the way that uh, the Lord has been moving through the establishment of his church following Christ's resurrection and what that means for us today. So we'll be in Acts 15 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there or uh, get there on the app. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen. And uh, we're going to kind of really be looking at a passage that centers around the idea of circumcision and this theological debate around that. Uh, So I either have you hooked or I've lost you, but just bear with me. And uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be gathered together this morning to sit under your word. Father, you have given us the words for life. And so, Father, as we have a chance to open up your scriptures, I pray that we would see the beauty of the gospel, that we would submit our hearts and our lives to these truths. And, Father, I pray for uh, just us as we have a chance to hear from you, and, Father, that I would speak your words and your truth this morning. I pray that where we need conviction, we would be convicted. Where we need to be challenged, we would be challenged. And where we need encouragement in the hope of Christ, that we would find it this morning. Father, I also uh, thank you that we live in a country where men and women have laid down their lives so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we have. So as we think about Memorial Day weekend, Father, I just pray for those families who have lost loved ones, who have sacrificed it all. Lord, we are grateful for them, and we're grateful to live in a country where we can open up your word without fear and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Father, I pray for churches gathering around our city that they too would preach Christ from their pulpits and that you would be glorified and honored this morning. We love you and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So as if you're still turning to Acts 15 in your Bibles, I just want to give a little bit of context of where we've been over the last few weeks in Acts 13 and 14. Uh, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, uh, has kind of told us what is commonly referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. He had been at the church in Antioch, and he left Antioch with Barnabas and uh, traveled around sharing the good news of the gospel. And we see incredible conversion stories throughout this missionary journey. We also see that Paul and Barnabas encountered great resistance in the message of the gospel. They encountered false teachers, they encountered violent persecution, and uh, as they go out and and they kind of share the gospel, that they endured this persecution, Paul's nearly stoned to death. Paul and Barnabas, uh, after that, ultimately returned to Antioch, and we pick up kind of at that point, starting in verse 1. So Luke writes, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about the issue. 
When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So what we see here is this theological debate that is stirring up both in Antioch and in Jerusalem. And it's about how the gospel will make its way out of strict Judaism and into the Gentile community and ultimately how the gospel will come to you and I. So if we look at verse 1, there's these Jewish men, they came down from Judea, and they begin to teach at the church at Antioch that in order for the Gentiles to be saved, they don't just need to trust in Christ, but they also must become circumcised. And it, so, you know, this idea of circumcision, it's a proxy for the moral and ceremonial law that the Jews followed. The understanding of these Jewish Christians was that the Jewish people were the called, appointed, covenant community of faith. Back in Genesis, God had chosen Abraham. He made a covenant with him that he would make this people for his possession. And that people group was the Jews. So anybody who wanted to join the covenant community, the, the tribe or the people of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, first needed to become Jews to join that. This was prior to Christ. And then they had to undergo strict adherence to the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and all of the ceremonial and ritual laws of Israel. There were different purity laws that you had to wash a certain way or a certain number of times before you would eat, before you would enter worship. There were laws around what foods were clean and what foods were unclean. There were laws around what types of fabrics you could wear. And all of that had to be adhered to after circumcision. So these men who came to Antioch basically want to set up an outpatient surgery center in Antioch so that the Gentile believers can become circumcised and become culturally Jewish. And we see in the text that Paul and Barnabas are having none of it. The text says that they engaged them in serious argument and debate. Okay, this is not a civil, quiet, friendly discussion, but a heated argument around a central doctrine of the Christian faith. This isn't like, ah, oh, do you like Pepsi or Coke more? Okay, this isn't about which, you know, restaurant has the best chicken sandwich. It's not a debate on whether or not grilling hot dogs and hamburgers is considered barbecuing, um, which for the record, it's not. Uh, but uh, that's another time for another thing for another time. The reason for this serious argument is because at this point, early in the church's history, the gospel was up for debate. And clarity around the question of what we must do to be saved was crucial for the unity and the mission of the church going forward. So Paul and Barnabas, they end up going to Jerusalem to settle the dispute in what is known as the First Jerusalem Council. And so they go to Jerusalem and we see them pass through Phoenicia and Samaria and they spend time encouraging the churches there on their way to Jerusalem. And it's a minute detail, but I don't want to miss that Luke points out that hearing about the conversion of the Gentiles brings great joy to these churches. And I pray that we would be a people, when we hear about the conversion of sinners to Christ, that we too would never lose that joy. We would never lose the joy of seeing people come to Christ. We shouldn't be wet blankets on people's salvation. 
It's the reason why we love to celebrate Baptism Sunday and, and baptisms in general. Every time somebody gets into the baptismal tank, it's a story that they were dead in sin and they've been raised to new life in Christ. It's why we give money to the mission field to see churches like Redeemer Queens Park planted in London so that people can hear the gospel and we can celebrate with great joy when those folks come to Christ. But we see Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, and they too share with the church in Jerusalem all that the Lord has done through their missionary uh, journey and, and, the, and the work that's happening amongst the Gentiles. And then in verse 5, it says, Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So I realize in our context, it's hard to connect the idea that people who are responding to the message of the gospel would have to become Jewish first. But for those in the, the, the men teaching in Antioch and for these Pharisees in Jerusalem, these are, our Pharisees are Christians. They are men who have trusted in Christ, but they also can't separate themselves from their Jewish tradition and custom. And so as the Gentiles begin to come to Christ, they expect that others converting would also have to become Jewish in the same, and follow the same rituals and laws that they do. So as we look at this passage, we see two primary questions arise that we must answer. The first is this, what is required for salvation? What is required for salvation? Is there anything that we must do other than being saved by grace through faith? Is there a work that we must do to accomplish our salvation? To the Jew, they're asking if the Gentile who receives Christ must first become Jewish to be saved. Is that a requirement for salvation, or is it faith and grace alone? The second question that we see is if the Gentiles are not required to become Jewish, then how are we and they to live together in Christian community? The Gentiles are not required to become Jewish. How are we to live together in Christian community? So the rest of this passage is a debate that lays out the response to these two questions. Let's pick back up in verse 6. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. So the first question we posed is what is required for salvation? And as we see Peter make the argument emphatically that the answer to that question is receiving God's grace by faith in Christ alone. And he gives two arguments on why this is the case. First, in verses 7 through 9, Peter points the apostles and the elders at the church in Jerusalem back to the salvation of Cornelius. 
Uh, this is from Acts 10 and 11, uh, and so if you missed those sermons, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those on the, on the podcast, but Peter goes to Cornelius' house uh, after receiving a vision and men coming to get him, and Cornelius is this Italian kind of special forces general in the army. It would be like going to, I don't know, Tim Kennedy or Jocko Willink's house today, and Peter preaches the gospel to him. The Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius, and those who hear the gospel are saved. So Peter is showing them that there was nothing ritualistic about Cornelius coming to faith. He didn't become a Jew. Peter didn't say to Cornelius, hey, all right, when you come to Christ, first you gotta be circumcised, okay? Next, when you go to uh, Nana's on Easter, no ham, because that's unclean, and uh, no more bacon in your keto omelets, and no Lululemon workout gear, because there's missed fabrics, and if you do any of those things, there's no place for you in the kingdom of God. No, instead, Peter is telling them, no, God chose me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So I went to Cornelius, and I preached Christ crucified for sinners. And God, who knows their hearts, gave them the spirit just as he did for us. God made no distinction between them, the Gentiles, and us, the Jews. The division between Jew and Gentile in Christ is no more. By grace, they were saved. So Peter's appealing to the testimony of what he has seen God do amongst the Gentiles to show that God's grace has been poured out on these people by faith, not by works. And then in verse 10, we see Peter's second argument. He says, now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? Peter's asking them, are we in fact requiring the Gentiles to do what we, the Jews, have been unable to do by following the law? He's like, we couldn't keep it. Our fathers couldn't keep it. Their fathers couldn't keep it. So why are we trying to get them to keep the law as well? And this is what we need to realize. The Mosaic law, both the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and the ritual law, is given to us so that we would see we are unable to meet the standards and requirements that the law holds us to. It's given to us not so that by the law we might be saved, but instead so that by the law we might be made aware of our need for our Savior. It's given to us so that we might realize salvation cannot come from within. So we're going to do a quick test on the moral law. Raise your hand if you're a liar. Okay, like most of you are, are honest about it, and a few, the, other, the others of you just proves my point, right? Uh, like, we are all liars. We lie, hopefully less now than when we came to Christ, and hopefully future me lies less than current me as we are sanctified, but we are liars. Okay, I don't think there are any murderers here, but I'm guessing some of us might have thought about it, okay? Anybody have the urge to punch somebody in the throat? Just me? Okay. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that murder begins with anger so that in my heart I've committed murder. Okay? Before the law, I'm guilty. No other gods before me? Yep. Guilty there too. I don't have golden calves, but I often replace my worship of the creator for the created things. I try to find security and fulfillment in the idols of work and the idols of money, the idols of relationships, what other people might think of me. I far too often replace where God should be on my heart with those things. Coveting, yep, guilty there too. Jen Wilkin, who is a, an author, describes coveting as wanting someone else's belongings, relationships, or circumstances. Far too often we want other people's things, their jobs, their families, their kids, 
their circumstances in life because we don't trust that God knows what we actually need. We think that we know better. We look around and desire the circumstances of others and tell God, it's not fair. We're like the little brother on Christmas morning whose sibling got a bigger gift, right? Like, I'll stop there, but if you are like me and you look at and you try to reach the moral law, you'll realize that every single time you fail. And the ceremonial law would be no better. It's full of over 600 do's and do nots that would just be impossible to keep. There is no way we can be saved by the law. Instead, Peter says in verse 11, it is not the law that saves, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Notice he doesn't say to the to the Jews who are kind of convened in the church. He doesn't say the Gentiles are saved like us. He turns it around and points out that it's not the moral and ritual law of the Jew that saves the Jews, but it is the gift of grace that comes through Jesus Christ. So Peter makes these two arguments. Cornelius is saved by faith, and the law is a yoke that no one can bear, and so we are saved by grace through faith. So to be saved, you need only to trust in Christ. The assembly becomes silent, and in verse 12, they listen to Paul and Barnabas describe all of the signs and the wonders that God has done among the Gentiles. They recount everything that they've seen the Lord do on their first missionary journey to confirm that the Gentiles are, in fact, coming to faith, that the Spirit is moving among them, and that the church is being built. And then at this point, we see James stand up and bring the debate to a close. James, this James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the author of the book of James. He was known as James the Just. And at one point, he denounced Jesus earlier in his life as crazy. But he saw the death and the resurrection of his brother, and he couldn't help but drop everything and follow him. So James, in verse 13, it says, After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Peter, has reported how God first intervened to take the Gentiles a people, from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. James basically slams the door shut on any hope that those from the party of the Pharisees may have had of the Gentiles converting to Judaism first. In verse 14, James is affirming that Peter's testimony is true. And he's doing so in a way that would connect with those in the audience who have a Jewish background. James is saying that God has taken from the Gentiles a people for his name. This would have been a phrase that was full of biblical echoes throughout the Old Testament. That Israel in the Old Testament was known as a people for God's possession. And now God, in the same way that he visited Israel, is visiting the Gentiles to take a people for his name. A people for his possession. There would have been no mistake to those with a Jewish background in the audience that James is speaking to to understand what he's saying in this moment. And then he looks to the scriptures after this and he reasons from the Old Testament, mostly quoting from Amos 9, that God will move among the Gentiles to include them in the people of God. 
He reminds them that God's plan from the very beginning has been to no longer separate the people of God based on an ethnicity, but instead that he would call a people to be saved from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, that they would be united under Christ. And he's using the words of the prophets to show that God would seek not only to restore Israel, to rebuild David's tent, but to reunite all humanity by the power of the Spirit. James is saying that the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God has been God's plan from the very beginning. As verse 18 says, from long ago. There was no need for works for circumcision to be saved. God had always planned to save the Gentiles as well. So the first question they debated, what is required for salvation, is answered. It's faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 19, Paul makes his conclusion. He says, based on what Amos has said, what we've heard from Peter and Barnabas and Paul, we don't need to place the difficulties of circumcision and the commands of Moses on everyone. Jews remain Jews, Gentiles remain Gentiles. It's not our ethnicity or customs or rituals, but the gift of the Spirit proclaiming Christ as Lord through baptism that unites God's people. And one other thought on this is we live in a world, too, where the gospel is under attack. I pray that we would be a people like James, that we would look to the scriptures and that we would find truth there. It may not always be the question of salvation for us, although that's certainly an issue, but we need to be a people committed to God's word who look to it as our authority. We don't need to seek truth or clarity from political parties or politicians, from what the culture says about gender or sexuality. We don't need to seek the world's definition of generosity or stewardship. We need to look to the scriptures, to the God of the universe who has spoken to us through his word and given us the words of life. May we be a people like James who cherish, know, and follow God's word. Now we move to the second question. As the Gentiles are not required to become Jewish, how are we to live together in Christian community? How are these individuals supposed to table or fellowship together? Let's look at verses 20 and 21. Again, this is James speaking. He just says, we don't need to encumber them with the moral and ritual law of Moses. And picking up in verse 20, he says, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. So James gives what seems to be these four kind of random restrictions to the Gentiles. It seems like he just said, hey, we're not going to put any rituals on them except for these rituals, which is kind of all of them except circumcision. So we have to kind of ask, what is actually going on here? And as God is forming a new people, a people across every nation, Jews and Gentiles, coming together, we have to understand how it is that we live and participate in the community of the church together. Because as Jews and Gentiles sit down to fellowship together with one another in the church, there are going to be things that the Gentile has the freedom in Christ to participate in, but that feels defiling and unacceptable to the Jew to participate in or be around someone who does. The easiest example of this in today's culture is probably the subject of alcohol. Okay, what if one of us enjoys a glass of wine? 
It's within our biblical right to enjoy a glass of wine or some other drink. There's nothing inherently sinful about that one glass of wine. We can talk about the wisdom, and we probably should spend more time talking about the wisdom of that, but we can't say that one glass of wine is inherently sinful. But what if your brother or sister in Christ cannot enjoy that same freedom? What if for you, a glass of wine that is enjoyed and controlled, but for somebody else at your table turns into two glasses, three glasses, more than that, and sinful, destructive behavior? Do you still put out the bottle when you have them over for dinner? No. That's the question at hand. The Jews viewed blood as defilement. They viewed aspects of pagan worship that were prevalent among the Gentiles as defiling. They didn't want to associate with anybody who took part in those practices. So what James is saying is this is what it means to be in Christian community, that our freedoms are laid down for the good of our fellow believers. By nature, we should be willing to lay down those freedoms that we have to serve those that we are in fellowship with. To the Pharisees who want us to hold to legalism, who want strict adherence to the Jewish ritual law, James is saying, hey guys, lighten up. Those things don't save us. Let us not place these unnecessary regulations on the Gentile brothers and sisters who are now a part of the family of God. It's not our acts that make us right with God. And to the new converts, to the Gentiles who want to live in their freedoms, James is saying, be sensitive to your Jewish brothers and sisters who don't have the same freedoms as you. He says, you aren't bound by the ritual law. He says, but avoid idolatry, which is so common in your communities, and be sympathetic to the practices of those who have a Jewish heritage. Really, the idea of this is saying that if I am going to walk with you in Christian community, that I am for you, that I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to encourage you as you walk with Jesus. And if the freedoms that I enjoy might ever cause you to stumble or to grow weary or to lose heart, then I will never do those things so that we can pursue the Lord together. So the answer to the second question, how are we to live together in Christian community as people from different cultures with different freedoms, how do we do that? We die to ourselves. We lay down those freedoms and we we unite around Christ together. So over the last few minutes, I just want to go over a few, I think, brief applications that are wise for us to take uh, from this passage. The first is this. We must fight for gospel clarity. We can never forget the gospel. Jude, in his letter, says to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all time. The good news of how we are saved was on the line in the early church. And there will always be a need to remember that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's it. And in an American Western culture where we live, there will always be a temptation to think like those who came to the church at Antioch, like those in Jerusalem who are in the party of the Pharisees, that it is our works that will save us. There's a temptation to look around and to believe that we are good enough to be made right with God, that we've done enough good deeds to cancel out the bad deeds, that we may have been involved in enough religious activity or our family is Christian or any work that you might think 
that you could do to be saved. That temptation will always be there. And maybe if that's not a temptation, you know in your head that you are saved by faith. There's a temptation in my heart to think, yeah, but I'm made more righteous by my works. That's not the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. There is no work that saves us. We must fight for gospel clarity. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you to do so. Because it isn't your works that are going to make you righteous. They cannot make you right before God. But faith in Christ on your behalf can and will. He's offered the free gift of grace through his son. You no longer have to work or strive to earn his favor. But instead, you can rest and trust in the finished work of Christ. The, the pressure to perform is off. It's good news. Trust in Christ. And it's because of Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and many figures throughout the history of the church that we have this message today of salvation by grace through faith. It's not that we stand together when we sing Amazing Grace. We don't change the words to Amazing Circumcision, how sweet the work. No, we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We must continue to fight for gospel clarity. The second point is this. We must give up liberty for the sake of gospel unity. There are plenty of freedoms that all of us can enjoy that might be a hindrance to another brother or sister that we walk with. So as we walk together as a church family, we must lay down our freedoms for the good of those around us and point them to Christ. James reminded the Gentiles that while there's nothing inherently wrong with eating food restricted by the Jewish food laws, for the sake of fellowship with your other Christians who had converted from Judaism and they still practiced these things, you need not serve rare steaks and ham, wrap, uh, ham wrapped in bacon whenever you're fellowshipping with these believers because it would be a stumbling block to them. They wouldn't want to participate. So we lay down our liberties for our fellow believers so that nothing comes between the fellowship and the unity that we share in the good news of the gospel. And this gospel unity should cause us as the church to look different to the outside world. People from the outside should come and see something different than what the world has to offer. The church should be a beautiful and glorious display of people who come from different backgrounds, different social classes, different tribes and tongues and nations who lay down their freedoms to offer the world the only hope that we have, Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that we get along all the time. We're still sinful people in our flesh, but we lay down petty differences, small disagreements for the sake of the gospel moving forward. And that brings us to our last point. Gospel clarity and gospel unity should move the mission forward. Patrick Schreiner, an author and theologian, says, the blessing of God was and is never meant to be self-contained. God pours out his favor on people, not so they can hoard it, but so that they can have it overflow to others. The message of the gospel is not something that is meant to be kept to ourselves. It's the best news we could ever receive, and it's meant to be shared with others. When we unite around the message of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection to save sinners, we have the opportunity to share that good news with others. We have the opportunity to take the gospel into our homes and into our workplaces and onto our campuses and into our neighborhoods to point people 
to the only thing that will save them, faith in Christ. Unity in the gospel and clarity on the gospel should compel us to go. It compelled the early church to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and we are recipients of their efforts. So may we be faithful to continue that mission. Would we not hoard God's favor, but I pray that it would overflow to others through us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be reminded of these truths from your word. Father, I think so often that I find myself like these men who came to the church at Antioch, that my heart bends towards works, that I think it's something that I might do that would make me right before you. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to remind us from your word that we are not saved by our works. We are saved by your grace through faith, and it's trusting in Christ alone that does so. Father, would you press that into our hearts this morning and this week? And, Father, as we walk in community, there's a temptation to live a life that is for me. But, Father, your word reminds us that we are to lay down liberties for the sake of those around us. So would we be a people that willfully gives up the freedom we have in Christ to walk in community with our brothers and sisters? Father, this is a word that we need to be reminded of over and over and over again. Would we be a people that continue to fight for gospel clarity? Would Would we be united around the truth? And Father, would you make us a people who go, who take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name.